بسم اللہ الرحمن الرحیم نحمد صلی اللہ رسول الکریم اما بعد الحمد للہ ونس اگین وی فینک اللہ سبحان فار الاؤنگ ٹو بی مسلمس الحمد للہ فرسٹ آف آل پیپل آف ایمان پیپل آف اسلام پیپل آف قرآن پیپل آف دا سنا پیپل آف دی انڈرسٹینڈنگ پیپل آف گائیڈنس اینڈ اف وی ٹرائی ٹو کاؤنٹ دا فیورز آف اللہ سبحان وی وانٹ بی ایبل ٹو ان تعدو نعمت اللہ لا تحسوها سو مینی ویز اللہ سبحان Just from the moment we woke up till now, if we were to start counting, we would lose count. We would not be able to in a number each blessing of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Even now as we're sitting here, there are thousands and thousands of favors of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala upon us. But amongst all of these favors, the greatest of them would be the ni'mah of iman and Islam. And for this, if Allah hadn't guided us, we would not have attained this. So this is something we need to recognize and appreciate and thank Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So we say Alhamdulillah, Alhamdulillah, Alhamdulillah. Some of the scholars say that every day, every day a Muslim should take out time and recognize the favor of Iman and Islam. Because the principle is the more we thank Allah on something, the more He will give us. We want to increase, right, in our Iman, in our Islam, in our love to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So we need to first of all recognize that it's not something just because I was born in a Muslim family or just because our surroundings were Islamic, we kind of take it for granted. But this is something we need to think about again and again. Sadly, we're at a time where just as many people are entering into Islam, there's a lot of people leaving Islam as well, especially within the youth. Atheism is on the rises. There's a, there's a lot of people we don't realize, but there's a lot of people that are actually leaving Islam now. And it's much more common than we think. Maybe a lot of people haven't verbalized it, but mentally they have lost Islam. They've, in there, they, they have such doubts and suspicions, and you could even call it borderline hatred, okay, that this is what's going on. So at a time like this, we should first of all appreciate what we have, alhamdulillah. It's a huge, huge blessing. Nothing greater than this, to have Iman and Islam. And then we should build on trying to become closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and helping others as well. May Allah give us a tawfiq. So over the last few weeks, um, we started speaking about another unhealthy thinking pattern. And just as an intro, once again, a very quick brief to why we're speaking about these things. The reason we're speaking about these things is the mind, the heart, and the body are all related and linked. They don't work independently. They're all linked to each other. And the way we think is the way we will feel. And the way we feel is the way we behave. We tend to rectify or try to rectify behavior. Um, and that seldom happens. We're not able to rectify. We're not able to rectify behavior. And the reason this happens, the reason this happens is because behavior isn't independent. It doesn't work by itself. Behavior is geared by our emotions and our feelings. And that is geared from our thoughts. So the way we think, that's how we end up feeling. The way we feel is the way we behave. If we just try to sort the behavior out, which we generally try to do, it doesn't work most of the time because it's something behind it. So this is what we're doing. Now, especially at times when we're feeling stressed out, when we are worried, when we have a down moment, when we are going through a difficult patch, at that time, it's very easy uh, because our brains are not functioning in the optimum level. It's in survival mode. It's very easy to fall into unhealthy thinking patterns. And when we fall into unhealthy thinking patterns, what happens is these will then have an impact on how we feel as well. And then this becomes our behavior as well. So negative thought equals negative emotions. Negative emotions equals negative behavior. This is just, this is just the normal, this is how it works. And then what happens is that unhealthy thinking pattern becomes your way of thinking. And you don't think there's anything wrong with it because I've been thinking like this for so long. That becomes my, the story of my life. 
That is the way I see it. Do I see it like that? Yes. Is it true? Not necessarily. So it, it might not be true, but I believe it's true because that's the way I see it. And I believe in it so strongly because it's been so long. It's like when a car's driven down um, a dirt path or a sandy road and then it goes again and again and again and many, many cars go down it. It actually looks like a road. It's not a road. But because so many, so many times we've gone down this pattern of thought, we believe it's true. Nobody in the world can tell us anything against it. So this is why it's so important to stop and look back and think, hang on, is this true or is this untrue? So in this chain of um, unhealthy thinking patterns, we spoke about one in detail, which was called filtering or having a negative bias. And then we moved on to the second one. Which one are we on now? So transference was part of the first one. Positive reframing is something we do in regards to this second unhealthy way of thinking. What did we call it? I think someone mentioned it. Did you say should statements? Okay, we call it should statements. Should. Can anybody give an example of what we spoke about? Or a should statement? Or has it been, uh, it's been two weeks, hasn't it, since we spoke about it, so we've forgotten. Okay, so very quickly, should statements are those statements where we would say, for example, I should be feeling like this, or this shouldn't happen. Or we gave the example, we gave a case study of two friends, Khadija and Amina. One of them passed away in a sudden car accident, right? They've been friends for 20 years. They grew up together, did everything together. They, they spoke to each other every day. They went out to eat together. They studied together and everything. When she passed away suddenly, even after a whole month passing, her friend was still sad. She couldn't get out of bed. She was grieving. She didn't feel like meeting anybody. She felt herself changing. She started saying to herself, I shouldn't be feeling this way. A month has passed. I shouldn't be feeling sad anymore. It's already been a month. So she went and took advice from one of her friends. And she told her the same thing. Yes, it's been a month. You should have got over it by now. Have you tried praying? Have you tried praying? And she thinks, well, I did try praying. But if you're saying that I should try praying, that means then she went and felt even worse because she thought I shouldn't be feeling sad. And if I'm feeling like this now, I must be weak in my Iman. And if my Iman is weak, then Allah doesn't like me. And if Allah doesn't like me, then what's the point in me praying? So instead of her feeling better, should statements fill you with a lot of guilt and shame. And instead of pushing you forward, they drive you backwards. And this is why should, and this is where the Prophet wasallam, when he said that when something has, you try your best to achieve something, if it doesn't happen, you shouldn't say, oh, if I did this, then this would have happened. Because this opens the door of shaitan. So it links in with this particular hadith of the Prophet very well. We already have this concept in Islam where when you've tried your best, then you can't say, oh, I should have done this. Or because this is not happening, then I must be like this. So this is how we compare these things. Now, when we look at a should statement, it looks good, right? However, it doesn't really help. It's very unhealthy and it, it's enough to ruin your day. And this is why we should avoid using should statements. We tend to use them more when we're going through stressful moments, but then it becomes our normal language. It becomes our normal language. So I'm going to give you an example of the trajectory of the mind, the heart and the body. This is how it goes. I'll give you an example. So a person is saying, a person says that I shouldn't be feeling sad. Right? Sadness is a human emotion and people feel it. As a Muslim, a person thinks, as a Muslim, I feel, right? I shouldn't be feeling sad. My Iman must not be strong enough. This is a thought, right? This is my 
thought pattern based on a should statement at the moment. So in my head, this is what's going on. I'm telling myself, I shouldn't be feeling sad. And because I'm feeling sad, my Iman must not be strong enough. That's now going to lead, lead to another thought. And that's going to lead to a thought saying, if I've got weak Iman, then my relationship with Allah is weak. If I've got weak Iman, my relationship with Allah is weak. Then, if my relationship with Allah is weak, then Allah must be upset with me. Can you see where we're going here? Right? If Allah is upset with me and He hates me, I'm going to be doomed. If I'm going to be doomed, what's the point in me trying to change things? Do we, do we see what's happening here? Right? What, what did you notice? What do you notice in this? Yep, so everything gets worse. Where did it start from? It started with a should statement. What else do we notice? So one thing we notice is it's a should statement. Number two, we see how things go worse. What else do we notice here? Yep. Okay, so if uh, the Prophet ﷺ told us not to use the word if in this kind of scenario um, and it's leading to us, anything else we notice here? So you're reinforcing the previous mindset, which was, I shouldn't feel sad. If I'm feeling sad, that means I've got weak Iman. If my Iman is weak, then my relationship with Allah is weak. If my relationship with Allah is weak, that means Allah hates me. If Allah hates me, then what's the point of me trying to do anything? I'm doomed anyway. What else do you notice here? What else can we see? Okay, so it's all negative. Okay. I'm looking for something in particular, which we spoke about in the beginning. Yeah, so we're pushing away further from Allah. Instead, of, you think that me thinking in this way will bring me closer, but instead, can you see what's happening? It's pushing yourself away. There's something I want us to notice here. What else can we see here? So this is how it starts. A person will initially just leave doing ibadah, and then it could lead to that. It does lead to that a lot of times. May Allah protect us. We don't want to go that far, but it can. There is a chance that can happen. What else can we notice here? If we look at, what did it start off with? What did it start off with? So, thought. It started off with a thought, right? Where did, what did that thought lead to? Feeling. Can you see? The thought led to a feeling of feeling just worthless. And then what did that lead to at the end? What did the person say at the end? What's the point of doing anything? So what's that? That's action, that's behavior. Can you see the strong link between thought, emotion, behavior? This is, this is me, this is you, this is how we think. And this is how it works. So we, it starts off with a thought. If it's a positive thought, then you're going to get a positive feeling. Positive feelings only lead to a positive action, right? Here we started off with a negative. Should statements are generally negative, unhealthy way of thinking. That is going to lead to a negative feeling, negative emotion, which is leading to a negative action and behavior. Well, it's so negative that it's leading to inaction. What's the point of me trying anyway? Can we see what's happening here? So this is how these three things are connected over here. Now, what we need to do is we need to learn how to dismantle should statements. First of all, uh, it's important to try and avoid them altogether. I don't know if anybody's been trying um, or if anybody's tried more than before, but it's quite powerful when you actually actively try. Um, I, I find it quite um, empowering when I see people um, we've spoken this about with and then mid-statement they'll stop. And you'll ask them, like, what happened there? Because I was trying to avoid the should statement. And that, that's, that's, that's a win situation. Alhamdulillah, it's working.
people are you know coming onto this so that that is that is good because the person you become self-aware you're not just living life and it's just happening you're aware of what's going on and this is what's expected Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants us to become conscious um, and, and, and be present not just do things you know on, on, on robot mode on autopilot but become conscious with ourselves and what's going on around us so let's try and dismantle a should statement how do you deal with it we all we all have should statements in our lives all of us this is not something that's just reserved for people who are going through a difficult time every one of us have should statements now it'd be really good if you could have a real example um, that would be much more realistic so is there anyone who has who applies like you know what should statements are should statements are um, unrealistic high standards that you set for yourself which is not Sharia which is not the law but you for whatever reason have set a high standard for yourself which is an unrealistic expectation and you try to live according to this and you keep filling yourself with guilt and shame right throughout your life and all of us will have something that falls in this category it'd be very good if we can together collectively dismantle one of these so we can learn how to work on this individually uh, any example anyone wants to share a should statement that you have in your life Okay, so you're saying in regards to your children doing hives, um, whatever situation you're in now, you tend to go back and think, I should have done this. Um, I, I, I should have started them off earlier, for example, or I should have uh, done this. And now, that's the part that you say. The part that you don't say, but it's going on in your mind is, because I didn't start them off earlier, I must be a bad parent. I must have made the wrong decision. I'm not good as a father. I am not doing the right thing for my child. How does that make you feel? It makes you feel horrible. Now, because that makes you feel horrible, our actions then will be according to that as well. Our actions won't be good. They won't be positive. Sometimes we might end up saying things doing things that again will end up regretting and this is a cycle it continues happening so we try and dismantle this particular one okay so let's try and dismantle this particular thought so this thought is um i should have i should have made certain arrangements for my child earlier um, and because i didn't i feel like a bad parent Okay, is that kind of right? Yeah. Well, let's take a, let's take it like that. So this is what we're what we're dealing with. So the first thing is, the question that we'll ask first is, how does this thought affect you in your daily life? How does this thought affect you in your daily life? I mean, only you can tell us that. So. So this particular thought pattern is leading to despair. Can you see? So he's, he's saying that it makes him feel like because, because he didn't do X, Y, and Z in the past, there's no point of doing anything now. Because of that, there's no, that's it. So is that empowering or disempowering thought? Initially, when you think about it, you think, oh, you're saying this to make yourself better. Like if I look at the Bible, yes, we can take lessons and inspiration from the past, which is good. But is that happening here? No. What's happening here is he's thinking, I should have done this in the past, making so-and-so arrangements with my kids. Because I didn't do these arrangements, I'm, I'm not good as a parent, or I didn't make the right choice, so I'm facing the consequences now. So what's happening on a daily basis is he's feeling um, that there's nothing else for me to do. Now, when did you first realize 
this unspoken rule because really what it is is a rule you've made for yourself but the rule you've made is is a very harsh unrealistic rule because I didn't make any arrangements for my children in the past they can't do anything now there's no possibility or there's no point of them doing any hives now and whatever they do it's not gonna work this is what you've kind of this is a rule you've made up in your mind right when was the first time you noticed this Okay, so when things became a bit more challenging and more busy. Okay, so because they're not reaching certain targets. Okay, and these targets, for example, what, like, what define those targets? Yeah, yeah, so what I mean is, where, where do you get that from, that they need to finish a certain juice by a certain time? What were you using as your threshold? Okay. Okay, now, let's take it from here. So, with this thought pattern, it does have advantages and it has disadvantages. It has both. There's advantages of thinking in this way and there's disadvantages as well. Any advantages you can tell me of this kind of thought pattern? Any benefit it's brought you? Yeah. Okay, so one thing it does is having this kind of thought, it kind of pushes you to take more action in the beginning, thinking, okay, let's get to this target. However, very quickly that changes, isn't it? Yeah? And like he said, it leads to despair. It leads to him thinking, so what are the disadvantages of this thought pattern? Okay, so you stop being proactive because you think, didn't do anything in the past, it's not gonna work now. Now, so the rule you kind of made up in your mind was, because I didn't do anything in the past, I should have done something in the past, because I didn't make arrangements earlier, there's no point of doing anything now. How could we, what's a potential alternative rule? How can we change this? Instead of you thinking, I should have done something in the past. Because I didn't do anything in the past, I must be a bad parent and it's not going to work now. What's, what's the potential alternative? How can we change this around? How can we make this a healthy way of thinking? Okay, we were getting somewhere. And? Okay, that's brilliant. So, Alhamdulillah, look at this already. Okay, Alhamdulillah, we've already achieved so much, right? Whenever we started, we've already achieved something. If they didn't start at all, they wouldn't have achieved anything at all. All we need to do now is carry on. All we need to do now is carry on and continue. And also, you'll feel less pressure. You'll feel less pressure as well. Because whenever you started, that's when you started. We carry on moving forward. Okay, so that was good, alhamdulillah. And I think that is... So how can you put this into practice? How would you put this rule now into practice? So alhamdulillah, I think that's, that's quite powerful. Now, what... Um, uh, brother Sami is going to do is he's saying that every day or whenever he gets a chance when he raises his hands he's going to show gratitude to Allah and thank Allah that he allowed him to uh, encourage his children to do hibs up until now it was probably a very feeling of despair or like what am I doing I'm not doing the right thing but now it's going to be different Alhamdulillah Allah allowed me to make arrangements for my children to do hibs of the Quran and alhamdulillah, whatever Allah has given, and, and, and that will turn into a good feeling. You'll feel good about it. 
And the way that will come out is the behavior and the relationship with the children will be much more encouraging, much more positive and much more motivating as well. And each day, each ayah will be looked at as a celebration, as a win situation. Alhamdulillah, we're moving forward, not moving backwards. So Alhamdulillah, that's something good. So can, can you see what we did there? Okay. If we apply that to another scenario of what we spoke about earlier, um, so we apply that to, for example, feeling sad. Um, so the rule a person has made that they're struggling with a should statement, I shouldn't feel sad. I shouldn't feel sad. Because if I feel sad, I must have weak Iman. It's very common, by the way. A lot of men especially think this. That I shouldn't feel sad. If I feel sad, then I must have weak Iman. How does it affect you in daily life? Well, you feel ashamed to ask Allah for help because you feel you've got weak Iman. And because you feel worthless, you feel I can't even, I shouldn't ask Allah for anything because I feel worthless. When did you first realize this unspoken rule? What was happening at the time? So generally a person might have felt this unspoken rule, thought about it when they were younger. Maybe a grandparent told them that Muslims don't feel sad. Muslims are not sad people. Muslims always find something to be grateful for. Right? We've been speaking a lot about gratitude and sometimes we can think of it in the wrong way thinking that, hang on a second, I'm actually feeling down at the moment and you keep telling me to be grateful. Okay, what, so what shall I be grateful for? So remember, they don't contradict each other. Two different things altogether. You're allowed to feel sad. So a person thinks that feeling sad is not something well. If you've been told this, for example, that Muslims don't feel sad. So this is when this person first uh, realized this, that when I was younger, Muslims, no matter what, never feel sad or always grateful. grateful. And maybe someone told you that Iman and sadness don't go together. Okay, that's when you first noticed and realized it. What are the advantages of this thought pattern? The advantage of this thought pattern is sometimes it pushes you to do more good deeds, read some more Quran. Uh, read some salah but the disadvantages overpower the advantages because very quickly you slip away what do you feel you start remembering i'm just worthless my iman is weak my relationship with allah is weak allah doesn't like me anyway so what's the point of me praying and a person then gives up what's a potential alternative rule how can we change this around anyone How could we reframe this should statement? Think of the good things we've done. How can we reframe this that I shouldn't feel sad? Okay, but specifically dealing with this particular thought pattern, I shouldn't feel sad. First of all, tell me, I shouldn't feel sad. Acceptance, first of all, is Allah has created us with emotions. Feeling sad is totally normal and acceptable for a Muslim. This is the first realization that we need to have. Without this, we're not going to move forward. I might feel, because I've believed it so wrong that a Muslim never feels sad, I might feel that to be true. Is it true? First of all, we have to analyze the way we're thinking. It's not true. A Muslim does feel sad. Prophets felt sad as well. Prophets, and their Iman was very strong. Okay? Also, what we need to realize here is, my current emotion does not define my relationship with Allah. If I'm feeling sad now, that doesn't define my relationship with Allah, does it? A lot of times we define ourselves based on our negative emotions or the things that are going wrong in our life. We define ourselves. Oh, I'm just a bad thing. I'm just bad at this. I'm just, I'm just like this. I'm just like that. Why do we do this? Instead, we should have positive aspirations and hopes and try and define ourselves according to that. This is what I'm aspiring to become. This is who I want to be. Rather than saying, this is very common, we say this, oh, I'm, just a, I'm just a this, I'm just one of those, I'm just like this, this is just me. That's not just you. You've told yourself this, 
So the way we can change this is telling yourself that Allah has created us with emotions. Feeling sad is normal and acceptable. My emotional state doesn't define my relationship with Allah. Key, key thing this is, very important. And how can we put this into practice? On a daily basis, I can remind myself that prophets experience emotions as well and sadness and Allah loved them. Therefore, I can also be loved by Allah even when I'm feeling sad. Even when I'm feeling sad, I can still be loved by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Feeling sad is not contradictory to Iman. So this is something uh, that we can think about. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give us a tawfiq. Something for us to all go back with inshallah and try and see if we've got any kind of um, should statement. Maybe it might not come to you now. But as you're going through your day, just be a bit more mindful and a bit more purposeful, intentional in the, what we're saying, what we're thinking. And you'll notice, okay, when that word should comes, you might not even say it. But a lot of people think, I, this, I should be like this. Sometimes when we're comparing to other people, okay, family members, brothers, sisters, maybe they've reached somewhere where you haven't. I, I should have had this by now. I should have got there by now. Really? What, why? Is that a rule? Is that a must? Or have you made that rule for yourself? And if we're living by it, our entire life we're growing up with guilt and shame, which is not healthy. Because constantly you're beating yourself up about something that's unrealistic. It's unachievable. Allah didn't make that standard. We hold ourselves up to higher standards which are unrealistic. That's, that's the problem here. And we all do it to some shape or form. And we've just gone through how to dismantle this. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give us the tawfiq. Okay, let's move on to our lesson for today. Lesson number 60. Okay, today inshallah, we are going to speak about, um, the question we're going to discuss is, what can we learn from the migration of Ibrahim alayhi salam? What can we learn from the migration of Ibrahim alayhi salam? Uh, Baytul Maqdis played a significant role in the lives of the prophets. We all know this. It was their qibla and it was their lighthouse for da'wah towards Tawheed. So thousands and thousands of prophets, um, they were there in Baytul Maqdis. A prophet was either born there or prayed there or passed by there or is buried there. Many lived their entire lives in Baytul Maqdis and there's others that migrated there as well. The one we're going to speak about is Ibrahim salam himself. So Prophet Ibrahim salam, he grew up in an environment around him, the society that he lived in, they were engaged in kufr and shirk very openly. Ibrahim salam, for a, from a very young age, he detested the idols. He hated the idea of shirk and he encountered many, many challenges uh, in preaching tawheed to his people. Uh, despite that, he never gave up. Ibrahim persevered, he didn't lose hope, he continued sharing the message of Tawheed. And even though he continued sharing the message, whilst he was in Iraq, it was only him, his nephew Lut and his wife Sarah, according to many, who actually accepted the message of Tawheed. Think about that, right? And he persevered, it must have been so difficult. So whilst he's in Iraq, he's got his nephew Lut He's got his wife Sarah salam, and himself. That's it. What did he have to do now? The situation became so bad, he could no longer live there. So Ibrahim salam, started his migration journey. Hijrah. The first person to migrate for the sake of Allah with their religion is Ibrahim salam, the first person to actually migrate for the sake of Allah uh, with, their, with their deen. This is what he took with him, his deen. That's it. And from there, first of all, he was in a place called Ur in Iraq. And from there, he goes to a place called Haran, uh, which is in southeast Turkey today. And incidents took place there. But from there, he goes to Egypt. We know the famous story in the Sahih mentioned regarding the king who tried to touch his wife. And we don't have time to go into that story. And then they were gifted with Haja. Now they have Ibrahim salam, Lut salam, Sarah salam, and Hajar salam. And then eventually they come to their final destination, which is, where did they migrate to? Palestine. 
Baytul Maqdis. Now, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala speaks about this in the Quran. وَنَجَّيْنَاهُ وَلُوطًا إِلْأَرْضِ الَّتِي بَارَكْنَا فِيهَا لِلْعَالَمِينَ Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that we saved Ibrahim and Lut alayhi salam and we brought them to a land in which we have placed barakah for all of the people. And then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَوَهَبْنَا لَهُ إِسْحَاقَ وَيَعْقُوبَ نَافِلًا وَكُلًّا جَعَلْنَا صَالِحِينَ So he comes here to Baytul Maqdis. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he didn't have any children. All these years he didn't have children. Now he's come to Baytul Maqdis. So in Baytul Maqdis, he's got safety. He can practice his religion openly. He can preach openly. He can start his da'wah mission properly. And on top of that, not only did he get safety, not only did he get sanctuary, not only can he practice openly, Allah says, we gave him Ishaq, Ismail and Ishaq. And not only did he give him Ismail and Ishaq, who came after them? Thousands and thousands and thousands of prophets and we made all of them righteous. Meaning Allah subhanahu the scholars of tafsir say that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is telling us that Allah completed his favor upon Ibrahim salam by bringing him to Baytul Maqdis in so many ways, in so many ways. Now migration for the sake of Allah is one of the greatest acts of ibadah. This is not something we talk about regularly because like, our parents were already migrated. For whatever reason, they migrated when they did, right? It was definitely not for Islam, right? But we don't really think about this or talk about this. But it's a very important topic. Migration, hijrah, for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, is considered one of the greatest acts of worship. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, when he mentions it in the Quran, he brings it side by side with jihad. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, إِنَّ الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا وَالَّذِينَ هَاجَرُوا وَجَاهَدُوا فِي سَبِيلِ اللَّهِ أُولَٰئِكِ يَرْجُونَ رَحْمَةَ اللَّهِ وَاللَّهُ غَفُورٌ رَّحِيمٌ Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, those people who migrate and those who strive in the cause of Allah, these are the ones who are desirous and hopeful for the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Now another verse which I want to quickly touch upon in regards to migration and why it's so powerful and how it links with Baytul Maqdis and everything we're speaking about. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَمَنْ يُهَاجِرِ فِي سَبِيلِ اللَّهِ Whoever migrates in Allah's way, يَجِدْ فِي الْأَرْضِ مُرَاغَمًا كَثِيرًا وَسَعًا will find many places on earth of refuge and plentitude. Muraghama. This Ibn al-Qayyim rahmatullah is speaking on the importance of migration in Islam. Going from one place to another for the sake of Islam, uh, it's a very special type of worship. It's known as Ibadatul Muraghama. Have we ever engaged in Ibadatul Muraghama? Anybody? We know ibadatul salat and ibadatul dhikr and ibadatul tilawatul quran and ibadatul sadaqah and we know all of these types of ibadah okay has anybody ever done ibadatul muraghama have you heard of this type of ibadah it's a very unique type of ibadah ibn al-qayyim rahmatullah says this is allah's special servants they recognize this ibadatul muraghama and we find it specially in Hijrah, because Quran mentions it, but it can be something that we can practice generally. It's very, very unique. And it's got a very special link with Baytul Maqdis. Those of you who've been to Baytul Maqdis, you will have experienced this very special type of ibadah, and you can't find this if you don't purposefully aim for this. Let's understand what it means. We don't have much time. It's a topic in itself, um, a very interesting one. Um, so, muraghama, irgham, righam, it comes from the word, the, the soil or the sand. That's what it means. In Arabic, we say, raghima anfu. Raghima anfu, may his nose rub in the dust. May a person's nose rub in the dust. Now your nose, right, in your body, a person's nose is the most respected place. In salah, you put your nose onto the earth. Right? So that's kind of the most, the peak of your body is your nose. Right? I know they say head, but here we, the nose is like the peak. And the dust is like the most lowest place on earth. Right? When you want to debase somebody, when you want to speak about somebody in a way like, you know, may that person be doomed or destroyed or like, who cares what you think? In Arabic, you say, Raghima Anfu. 
Like despite their hatred and them not wanting, like may their noses rub in the dust, okay? Like may you be doomed, away with you, right? This is, this is in Arabic we say, Rahima anfu. Uh, so over here, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uses the word muraghama for hijrah. Now, scholars have discussed this in detail. Why is hijrah muraghama, ibadatul muraghama? Do you know why? When Muslims are in one place, for example, Ibrahim salam was in Iraq. He wanted to worship Allah, called towards Tawheed. Did the people allow him to? No. They punished him, they spoke ill of him, they tried to kill him, and they, they didn't want it because they hated what he was doing. Allah is saying, don't you worry. Leave that land, go somewhere else and practice because you will have their muraghama, meaning you will get an opportunity. Now you can open, openly practice Islam. Iman, you can call out the adhan loud, you can pray your salah, you can be yourself. The first thing that's going to do before you get even any reward, it's going to put your enemies, their nose in the dust. What they didn't want you to have, you're going to have. And that in itself is an ibadah. Enraging, enraging the enemy is an ibadah in itself. Ibadat maqsooda. Allah wants you to do this. Allah wants us to do this. Anything that makes shaitan angry, what is, what is ibadatul muraghama? Every action, verbal or with your physical or verbal action, that is recognized in the sharia, so you're not doing anything haram. Any action that you do that angers and enrages the shaitan and anyone who is an enemy of Allah, this is ibadatul muraghama. It carries within itself a special flavor which you will not experience in any other type of ibadah. And this is in many shapes and forms. This is the highest form, hijrah. When the Muslims ended up in Medina Mulawwara, like they didn't just like, how many Muslims were there in Makkah? Anybody know? By the time they did hijrah, how many people accepted Islam? Under 180 people? Maybe we didn't think of it like that. Only 80 people accepted Islam in those 13 years. That's it. When they went to Medina, how many? 1,000, 2,000, 3,000, 4,000. Where, where did it get to? Okay, over 100,000, isn't it? Right? What, what, what do you think was happening to the people in Makkah at the time? What was happening to them? Yeah? This, 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 causing this enraging feeling, this in itself is a huge ibadah. Quran speaks about this. Quran says in other places as well that any action you take in this path to enrage the shaitan, to enrage anybody who doesn't want you to do it, whether it's a munafiq, whether it's an enemy, whether it's an opponent, somebody who hates you or who hates Islam, and you carry out this ibadah, Quran says, every time you do it, Allah will write for you a good reward. So that in itself, Quran mentions muraghama even before the sa'a. Sa'a means that a person comes to now your place of migration and you've got now openness, you've got vastness, you've got plentiful things to eat and drink and to wear. There it was very restricted. They didn't allow you to eat, they didn't allow you to live. Life was very restricted. Quran says the muraghama even before the expansion that you've got, the plentitude that you've got, because this is, this is greater than that even. This in itself is so great. So ibadatul muraghama. This is Ibrahim salam, something we can learn from Ibrahim salam, worshipping Allah and in this kind of way where uh, and we find that it wasn't just Ibrahim salam, we find it that um, this is Ibn Qayyim rahmatullah says that there is nothing more beloved to Allah when a friend of his causes an enemy of Allah to become enraged. There's no, nothing more beloved to Allah when one of Allah's friends causes one of Allah's enemies to become enraged. This is ibadatul muraghama, very unique type of ibadah and it's maqsood. Allah wants it and Quran speaks about it in a few places, not just one. There's a few places in the Quran you will find kufar, kufar, to enrage 
to do it sometimes it's good to have it publicly to do it openly and this is why we need muslims to be unified there are many many ways in which we can engage in ibadatul muraghama in this context i just explained that it would mean that when a believer reaches the place of migration and is able to worship allah freely this will enrage the enemies that originally became the cause of the migration the significance of Baytul Maqdis increased further upon Ibrahim salam arriving in Baytul. Baytul Maqdis was already special, but Ibrahim salam, the Khalil of Allah came, he becomes even more special. Through him, Ishaq salam, then Yaqub salam, and then thousands and thousands of prophets, and then Ismail salam, and the Prophet wasallam. So the significance of Baytul Maqdis became even more. Baytul Maqdis was also the intended place of migration for Musa salam, as we know. Uh, of course, the disobedience of Musa Islam's people led them to be in the wilderness for 40 years. So Baytul Maqdis will always remain a place of migration for the followers of the prophets until the final day, until the final day. And people will continue going to Baytul Maqdis to protect their Iman and Islam. The Prophet says, There will be consecutive migrations. This is a hadith. In Abu Dawud, there will be consecutive migrations. For the best people of earth will be those who cleave onto, hold onto the place of migration of Ibrahim. What was it? Palestine, Baytul Maqdis. Those people who hold on to that land will be Khiyaru Ahlil Art. And then the worst type of people will remain on the world and uh, Allah will hate them and abhor them and the fire will come and gather them uh, with the, the apes and the monkeys. So we conclude on this. Uh, this week's campaign, inshallah, I'm going to ask you, have you experienced Ibadatul Muraghama? Have you ever experienced this in your... Those who've been to Baytul Maqdis, you will have experienced this in certain areas when you make the takbir. Okay, this is ibadatul muraghama. Okay, when you go to places where people they don't want you to be there, just standing there, just walking there, reciting Quran there, praying salada, being a Muslim in those lands, doesn't it give you a feeling which you've probably not experienced? Even a person with weak and low iman goes to these areas, and this is why one of the reasons why people in those kind of areas and lands, okay, we might think, uh, how is it that their iman is so strong? But then apparently they don't look so religious as well. Okay? If you're constantly in this ibadatul muraghama, it's it's a very, very unique type of ibadah Ibn al-Qayyim Rahmatullah mentions, which Allah has reserved for his Siddiqeen, he says. This is a secret of the Siddiqeen, reserved for them, and only few people actually experience this type of ibadah called ibadatul muraghama. Now, taking inspiration from Ibrahim salam, his migration and how that was Ibadatul Muraghama. I want you to think of ways that you can engage in Ibadatul Muraghama in your daily life. In your daily life. You might be already doing some of them, but it's the intention. It's the intention. Can you give some examples? And you can think of more. The ulama have discussed this in detail. There are 10 types of Ibadatul Muraghama and then how we can implement them uh, on, on a daily life. One of them is the establishment of the Sha'air of Allah. For example, performing Salah with Jama'ah, Jumu'ah. This is why we should have Eid outside. Having Eid outside. And the, and, and, and the closer we are as Muslims, the larger the gathering. Yes, we might disagree with each other, but for the sake of Muraghama, okay, this is actually maqsood, it's an objective. Allah wants us to do this. And not just, it doesn't just come so, one is ibadah, continuing, for example, the calling out of adhan, um, wearing the sunnah clothing, practicing the sunnah in public, okay? This is ibadatul muraqah, people hate it, okay? They're looking at you, not just non-Muslims, even a lot of Muslims who are hypocrites maybe, okay? This is maqsood, shaitan, anything that makes a shaitan angry, the easiest way to look at it is like this, to enrage the shaitan by doing anything that's halal, anything. It doesn't have to be salah or dhikr. For example, for example, encouraging Muslims to become doctors, to become lawyers, to become engineers, to become experienced. This is ibadatul muraghama. People hate it. Having Muslim professionals, okay, with this intention, 
your survival in the world to do this, this is ibadatul muragama also. There are, there are so many different ways. And we think of it in this way, um, and it will give a new life. Ibn al-Qayyim rahmatullahi mentioned this is a very unique type of ibadah, and we can take inspiration from Ibrahim alayhi's migration, and where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he says, hijrah is muragama. We can have muragama every day in our life. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give us a tawfiq. Inshallah, we'll give some time for the recitation of the Quran. So throughout the week, think of ways in which you can engage in ibadah al-muragama. Next week, inshallah, I'll ask you what you thought of, inshallah. May Allah give us tawfiq. La ilaha illallah, 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 la ilaha illallah 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 subhanallah walhamdulillah wa la ilaha illallah wallahu akbar wa la hawla wa la quwwata illa billahi al-aliyyil azim subhanallah walhamdulillah wa la ilaha illallah wallahu akbar wa la hawla wa la quwwata illa billahi al-aliyyil azim subhanallah walhamdulillah wa la ilaha illallah wallahu akbar wa la hawla wa la quwwata illa billahi al-aliyyil azim subhanallah walhamdulillah wa la ilaha illallah wallahu akbar wa la hawla wa la quwwata illa billahi al-aliyyil azim subhanallah walhamdulillah wa la ilaha illallah wallahu akbar wa la hawla wa la quwwata illa billahi al-aliyyil azim subhanallah wa bihamdihi subhanallah al-azim 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 Astaghfirullah, Astaghfirullah, 
Allah. In our final moments, O oh Allah, we don't know where we will be, what condition we'll be in, O oh Allah. We will need your help and assistance most of that time, O oh Allah. Make our last day our best day, O oh Allah. Make our final action our best action, O oh Allah. And grant us death with Iman and Islam, O oh Allah, with the kalima, La ilaha illallah, Muhammadur Rasulullah. O Allah, look after our parents, O oh Allah. Have mercy upon our parents, O oh Allah. Accept the good deeds of our parents, O oh Allah. Forgive their shortcomings, O oh Allah. Elevate their status, O oh Allah. O oh Allah, you take care of them, O oh Allah. Those of our parents who have left the world, fill their graves with nur, O oh Allah. O oh Allah, unite us with them in the hereafter, O oh Allah. Safeguard us from your punishment of the fire, O oh Allah. Grant us jannah to those without a reckoning, O oh Allah. Nabi Kareem sallallahu alayhi wa sallam asked of you many good things. We ask of you the same. O oh Allah, we seek your protection from all those things which Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam sought your protection. O oh Allah, grant us an opportunity to engage in ibadatul muragama, O oh Allah. Grant us the understanding of ibadatul muragama, O oh Allah. Make us from those who engage in ibadatul muragama. Subhan rabbika rabbil izzati amma yasifoon wa salamun ala al-mursaleen. Alhamdulillah.